Good evening, everyone. I think we're the brave ones coming here tonight to talk about courage. Um, I don't know, I just want to start by expressing my gratitude, really, um, for this Sangha, for the privilege, really, that we all have to be able to come here and feel relatively safe so that we can sit in deep meditation together and um, get connected to the larger source of truth. Um, I mean, we're surrounded by war and violence. You know, we just walk out the door, but we turn on our TV and what's happening in Israel is, is just horrific. Um, all the innocent people, the reminders of the Holocaust, the ongoing oppression of the Palestinian people, the, the Ukrainian wars, I mean, it's all around us. And yet we have this kind of sanctuary where we can come and find the inner resources to turn towards and consider how to care for the world. Um, and it's also true that racism is here in our home, in, in our home country. Um, I think our civil rights pilgrimage was this visceral immersion into um, the history of the civil rights movement and the, I don't know, facing in a different way, the truths of the horrific violent backlash of white people. Um, and we shared this a couple of weeks ago. I mean, it's still just hard to, to bear that even though Brown versus the Board of Education made it into a law that it's inherently unequal to segregate schools. You know, the, the leadership in Alabama did everything they could to prevent the integration of schools, just as one example. Um, and it was violence. And even the children were put on the front lines. Um, so, you know, this, this pattern of white backlash that it seems like whenever there's a, a success amongst the black people or there's more rights that are um, enforced, the more the backlash. And, you know, this is what's happening now. I mean, banning books so that children can't learn about the history of slavery and racism. I mean, once the 1619 project came out, then they started banning the books and um, critical race theory became like this, you know, hot potato or something. Most people didn't even know what it was, but just the, the words critical race theory set off all of this backlash again. So here we are. Um, so um, I guess to talk about courage makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Um, how can we cultivate our capacity for courage? Because there's so much going on that's asking us to pay attention to, but to pay attention to maybe in a way that manifests uh, what we know about the Dharma. Um, Norman Fisher, I just read, he said, in the face of our despair and overt helplessness, he says, we can't stay dead. We have to come back to life because this is our condition, our privilege, our obligation. So we are people of privilege. Um, 
And so to develop our capacity to act from courage is really what we're called to, to do. Um, so I, I'm speaking for myself, but Malia's gonna share her compelling stories too in a little bit. But, um, you know, I feel like I've been inspired by what I learned going to Alabama, um, the courage really among the black people to stand up for what was right. And it was a very special kind of courage really that we can learn from. Like I just found out a couple, about a week ago that, you know, right at the point that the direct action rallies and sit-ins were started in Birmingham, there were 60 black churches in Birmingham that were meeting secretly to plan and to work together. The sense of community, you know, everybody, you know, bringing all of their resources and all of their faith together to um, do something that could make a difference. And even the discipline of a nonviolent way is very, very powerful. I mean, to see how even the children were trained in nonviolent um, protests and they acted on it. And it's just very um, inspiring, that courage, but it's a community courage. It's everybody coming together. Um, and also their faith. These were 60 churches <laughs> where people were meeting. You know, everything was sort of grounded in their faith and in their practices. Um, I was telling somebody recently that, um, and I shared before that the, the faith is what moved black people to act, not hatred, not a belief in violence to overpower. Um, and this courage grew out of a deep belief in their full humanity as black people. All people are equal. So, um, so courage is actually built into our bodhisattva vows, I think, you know. I vow to refrain from all evil. I vow to make every effort to live in enlightenment. I vow to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings. These are vows that we take. And the, the importance of vows is, you know, it's something we're trying to live up to. It brings us out of our small selves. So those vows themselves, I think, support our capacity for courage. Um, but, you know, well, what is courage? And so I kind of looked up different definitions and uh, the one that seemed to fit is courage is a mental or moral strength to persevere and withstand danger, fear, or difficulty for the sake of a higher value. Actions on behalf of higher values are what make change happen. Um, and moral courage is the ability to act rightly in the face of opposition, shame, scandal, discouragement, personal loss, belittlement, rejection, verbal abuse, all of that, not easy. But I really liked C.S. Lewis's definition of courage. He said, Courage is not simply one of the virtue, one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point 
which means at the point of highest reality. So courage is to act on the values you know, when it's really important. So um, tonight I hope we can all, I mean, um, courage has many faces and courage is different for each of us. And I think we can learn from each other by our own experience. But I'm just gonna share a couple of my thoughts and then Malia has some compelling stories to tell. Um, because I think underneath everything, courage is natural. It's sort of built in, it's our Buddha nature. Um, somebody said, um, uh, it's an imprint actually of being immediately connected on the deepest level to life. So it's an imprint, it's already built in. And so like the people who wanted to come on the pilgrimage, almost everybody said, I don't know, I just have to go. You know, sort of a natural response that wasn't something that they analyzed or thought about. It was like a whole body experience. Um, and we chant, even as a mother at the risk of her own life, watches over and protects her only child. So with a boundless mind, should one cherish all living beings. It's built in. And I know that every one of us have had experiences where we acted from courage. And I, this is kind of, I'm embarrassed to share this, but like when I was 13, I was in this English class and the teacher, I got really mad at him because he wouldn't let us study Shelley because Shelley's poetry, what, he was a Christian and we can't talk about religion in school. So I, I was already mad about this, but then we were sitting in class and there was a bunch of us girls and we were sort of passing notes around to each other. And uh, he got really upset that we were passing notes around and I happened to have the note at that point and he demanded to see it. And before I knew what I was doing, I sat on it. I sat on the note <laughs> because, I mean, I wasn't thinking, but you know, that's private. You, you don't have a right to read the notes. You can tell us to stop writing the notes, but you can't tell you can't read them. And so, you know, he threatened to fail me in class. He was so offended by what I did. So, I mean, we could analyze the skillful means of that action, but, um, you know, it's built in somehow, I think. We have values that we just naturally live from. Um, but also, maybe we have all the ways in which we hold back where maybe we don't have the confidence or maybe we get afraid um, or maybe, you know, we feel too helpless. There's all these reasons that we hold ourselves back. And so, you know, even our white privilege, our white privilege is our, our unearned advantage that we have so many comforts, we have so many opportunities as just because we're white and actually you know, I think there's a pressure within the white community to stay silent, you know, to not speak out. And so to speak out becomes really scary. You know, you're going to be kicked out of the group. Um, and, and for me, many times I 
can see in an event that there's racism going on, but it's not until later that I think about what I should have said. Um, and, you know, I feel like it's because I, I don't have enough practice. I don't spend enough time cultivating, okay, what would I say? And, and try to go back and rework certain uh, moments like that. Um, but we have a practice. Do not turn away. We don't avoid. We don't hold on. So these practices can help us stay honest about ourselves and our reactions. It's not just, yes, I want, I'm courageous, but all the ways in which I wish I were. And I'm not. Um, we also maybe hold back because so much emotion gets stirred up. And I apologize because I don't know his name, but I heard this long interview with the head juror of the um, Derek Chauvin trial, the murder of George Floyd. And he was black and the head juror. And he talked about this incredible challenge that to, just to witness this white man talking and seeing the movie of what he did stirred up so much in him that he could hardly tolerate being in the situation. And so it was by turning to his faith, praying every night, asking for clarity, that he could finally find a way to clear his mind enough to, to be courageous. Um, so I also think deep listening takes courage, especially in situations where there's injustice and you might have a strong reaction to what someone's doing, you know, to be able to have the discipline to first listen rather than argue or rather than lecture or rather get, than getting upset. That also takes courage, I think, that kind of discipline and to open our hearts enough to hear another view, even though we feel strongly about something. Um, and sometimes courage requires that we can live with shame. Um, I, I, I know I shared this experience many years ago, but I was working with a faculty member who was black, and it was at the time that I think Harvard or Princeton, I'm not sure which, came up with this survey test that you can take um, where pictures are flashed on the screen of white and black people, and then you immediately say what your reaction is, and it's a way of getting at unconscious racism. And so she asked me if I would um, invite my students to take this survey. And um, I said, well, sure, I'd be glad to, but then I thought to myself, I better take this survey too before I ask my students to take the survey. So I took the survey and I was just shocked <laughs> to discover, you know, to what extent I too, on an unconscious level, am racist. But the shame came when I told my colleague the results. I felt like I had to be honest with her. Um, and just, you know, the shame that comes from you know, learning something about ourselves that we don't necessarily want to know <laughs> or we want to think otherwise. Um, and also to show that to somebody else, you know, shame really causes us to hide ourselves because the shame means we don't want anyone to see who we are. 
So, um, you know, I don't, I, it was an amazing experience because she just stood there. She was like a bodhisattva with unconditional presence. She didn't try to talk me out of it. She didn't judge me. She just was there. Um, and uh, somehow, you know, our relationship continued to grow. But so shame is another part of, I think, looking at what might be make it hard to do something from a place of courage. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is that um, I think courage also is asking us, and this is our practice, to let go of thinking of ourselves as individuals, like not to ask the question from the place of courage, what should I do? Thinking that we have to be a hero, you know, or get our picture on the television or something. Um, we let go of the I because we need to say, what can we do? We're participating in this large, you know, challenging world and the changes are not going to occur in our lifetime for sure. But if we participate, if we let go of attaching to something I should do, then, then together, like in the African-American community, together, maybe some way that we act and see the situation um, will contribute to something good. So these are just a few thoughts. Um, and Malia will speak. Please. Uh, okay. Do you have your microphone? I do, yeah. Can you hear me? Oh. Not very well, did you say? Uh, a little pain. Oh. Okay, well, can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Um, I was thinking today about what an unpopular topic courage is. Like, you don't read much about courage, or people don't really talk about it or aspire to it that much. You know, it doesn't come up in the news, in the news cycle very often. And I feel like it hasn't really been a popular topic since I was in elementary school. <laughs> Um, I, yeah, I wanted to read, um, or when, when we were here two weeks ago, we talked about our trip to Selma and how we spent the day with a woman named, um, Joanne, Joanne Bland, and she was our guide and her older sister, I think I talked about her as well. Her name's Linda Blackman. Um, wrote a book, and she was the youngest person to go on the march, to do the full march from Selma to Montgomery. And I guess, um, you know, thousands of people began the march, but the National Guard only allowed 300 people to do the bulk of it. They could only protect 300 people. Um, and then a lot of people were able to join the final day. Um, so she was in this group, the sister. And so she she talks about it in this book. <clears throat> and these are her words, actually. So she she was in the first march on Bloody Sunday, and she was attacked really brutally. She was 14 and um, called names by, you know, by the police officer. And she had she was unconscious and bleeding from her head. And, you know, it was, it was horrible. Um, and then there was a second attempt at the march a couple days later. And that was the one that Martin Luther King decided to interrupt it and didn't go forward. And then I think it was two days after that, they got um, 
they were assured by the federal government that they had the right to march and would be protected. And so, um, so anyway, this is Joanne Bland's sister. <clears throat> and she says, so she's talking about the second day. So, and we actually, um, when we were in Alabama, we drove along the route, the route that they walked and our driver pointed out, you know, the various campsites where people camped. Um, and everybody was together. There were these 300 people. Five days. Right. Yeah, five, five days. days. Mm -hmm. Five days, four nights. And, um, and it was actually a, a big logistical challenge because folks who provided the camp, you know, the campgrounds, they allowed their property to be used, you know, for people to camp were effectively run out of town afterward, the white people. People stopped going to their business, they were threatened, they couldn't live there anymore, etc. So um, anyway, we, we did see the various campsites. And so she's talking about how she woke up on day two. And she says, the next morning I woke up on the ground wrapped in a blanket, <clears throat> my head on the little canvas bag that held my stuff. All around me, women were waking up, maybe 150 of them, lying in long rows. It was March 22, 1965, my 15th birthday. When I left the tent, I walked out into a foggy, dreary morning. In front of me, I saw three white National Guardsmen. Now, there were maybe 100 Guardsmen around, but I just focused on those three because they were looking right at me, and the long steel bayonets of their rifles were pointed at me. In my eyes, they looked exactly like the white troopers who'd beat me on Bloody Sunday. I started screaming and I couldn't stop. I was scared they were there to kill me, to finish the job they'd started two weeks before. I was terrified. All I wanted to do was go home. Um, running back to the tent, I yelled, they're gonna kill me, don't let them kill me. I grabbed Ms. Mary, crying and yelling, they're out there to kill me, I've gotta go home. A lot of people, um, people came running and the National Guardsmen surrounded our tent. They wanted, they wanted to know what was wrong too. Everyone wanted to know who was gonna kill me. When I pointed to the guardsmen, people thought I was crazy. They're here to protect you, they said. A lot of people wanted to send me home from the march. They were mad because I was holding up the whole march. But the ladies said I was too scared to go anywhere. They tried to comfort me, but they weren't able to comfort her. Then a white man named John Letherer came over. He had lost a leg in a war and was walking all the way to Montgomery on two crutches. Jim told me that before he'd let anyone else harm another hair on my head, he would lie down and die for me. I knew I couldn't let this man do more for me than I could do for myself. So at that moment, I knew if this man was willing to die for me, then I really had to give up the fear of dying myself. <clears throat> I knew I had to do this and I could do it. So I just thought it was, well, I just, I think it's interest, an interesting story from a lot of angles, but you know, the fact that this man, that she was um, kind of, you know, melting down to use the clinical term and this, you know, man, and nobody could soothe her um, except this, this man who basically assured her that he would die for her and that somehow um, she knew they were going to be walking together, and they did, and she was able to develop the confidence to go forward. Um, 
the I was telling Dora Lee that, you know, when I think of my own, you know, situations where I feel like I need to muscle through things. And speaking of courage, I, I realized the last time I really saw it as a prominent theme was on The Wizard of Oz, where, you know, the lion is searching for courage and the, the scarecrow is looking for a brain, I think, and the tin man wants a heart. And I always completely identified with the, the lion, the, <laughs> needing the courage. But, um, but I found for myself, when I, you know, I can become pretty good at pushing myself through to do things, but it doesn't, it's not very effective um, be, unless I feel like, unless I can sort of back off and, um, sort of be more compassionate to myself. And when we were in Montgomery, we went to um, the Legacy Museum. And I was pretty apprehensive actually about going um, because it focuses, or I, I had heard that it was very graphic about the lynching and the, you know, the, the terror that people endured. Um, so I, I had to sort of um, very consciously focus on my breathing the whole time I was there. It was like a four-hour trip. You know, you want to spend several hours there because um, it takes courage, really, to look mm -hmm. at what was um, portrayed in this museum. We talked last time about how extremely gentle and kind the staff at that museum were. Mm -hmm like really remarkable. I mean, clearly it wasn't by accident. We didn't just all happen to bump into people who were really, um, really kind to us. But I, I think it must be in recognition of the fact that you can't take in this experience otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, and and I'm, I'm talking like the museum staff people. Mm -hmm. um, so... We, Dorley talked about um, the role of shame in courage, and I was she, she and I were trying we were discussing what to talk about today or how to talk about courage. I was telling her this story about how when I was I, I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist, and I was treating this this little girl who was brought in by her foster mom. The family was black. The foster mom was black. The child was black. And the foster mom was really pushing hard for medication and she wanted heavy duty medication and I couldn't figure it out. And so we, I spent quite a bit of time with her and then we had a second appointment and I spent time with the kid and got put the story together and, and I sat down with the, the foster mom and said, you know, I, she's really, I think just a very exuberant, normal nine-year-old girl. Um, I'm not really seeing where this is coming from, you know? And the foster mom told me, she said, well, you know, she, she said, she was telling me how that weekend or a couple weekends before the family had gone out, I don't know, to some tourist attraction and it was mostly white people. And then they went out to dinner afterward and she was really proud 
that she could take her whole family out to dinner. There were like six or seven kids. And she said that this little girl was like yelping and squealing and running around in the restaurant and whatnot. And I assured her that was not abnormal behavior for a child that age. And she said, well, yeah, but if you're the only black family in the restaurant, you can imagine, think about how the white people are looking at you. And I did think about it and I realized she's right. You know, I could see where um, people would look down on them, you know, on her um, for not having this child under control, how it would have a different meaning than if you saw a, a white family with a child behaving similarly. Um, so I was, I mean, ashamed to have to convey to her that I understood and believe <laughs> that she was right, you know. Um, and so we just kind of, she and I kind of sat there together. And, but all the steam kind of went out of her sails. And she, um, she was no longer interested in trying to get medicine for this child. Um, and I think she, you know, I assume she saw me as part of the dominant culture and an authority figure and thought, and then when it was, when I conveyed to her that I, I believe she was right, um, she wasn't fighting it anymore. You know, we could, we were both kind of sadly peaceful together. Um, Anyway, so those are some some stories. Um, and then I was telling Doralee a story last week. I was in line at the Goodwill. <clears throat> so you, the way it is in my town, you drive up and um, you have your stuff in the trunk and you wait behind the crosswalk. And then when it's your turn, the guys come with their big bins and they help you load the stuff. So I was at the front of the line and this woman pulled in and kind of looked at me, made eye contact, kind of seemingly apologetically, and then pulled in right directly in front of me. And I thought, oh, she's got to make a U-turn in this parking lot or something. And so, um, but then she didn't move. She stayed right there. And then she popped open her trunk and the guy started helping clear out her stuff. So she basically, you know, jumped to the front of the line. And for me, I mean, I, I didn't want to, my natural tendency is not to, is just to let it go. But then I got out of the car and I looked and there's like three cars behind me. So she's not just cutting in front of me, she's cutting in front of everybody. So it's sort of on me to speak up. Um, so I called out, I said, there's actually a whole line here. And she just stared at me and the guy stopped loading her stuff into the bin and he said to her, I'll help her and then I'll come back and finish and finish helping you. Um, and so then he started helping unload my stuff and I was, I was kind of mad and I wanted to, I was considered saying to him, you know, she just jumped right in front of the line. Um, but then I thought, well, this guy, he's like a 25 year old kid. He's just trying to keep peace here, keep things moving, let it go, you know? And so I did. I didn't say anything. I unloaded my stuff and then I'm leaving. Um, and the man in back of me is calling out to me and he said, he thanked me for speaking up. 
And so it was an example, because I don't have many, in which um, I felt like I handled this situation somewhat skillfully <laughs> from kind of considering from in, the, in that I acted, kind of noticed how I felt kind of throughout, kind of considered telling the worker, decided it was better not to, um, and to let him do his job. And then, anyway. Yeah, you spoke out. I mean, you... I spoke out mm -hmm. when not, normally I probably wouldn't have. Yeah. I must say that since the Alabama trip, I do, um, I am much more inclined to speak out, though, um, including uh, on, uh, not speaking out feels um, more dangerous to me, actually, since the trip, like much more serious and much more dangerous to not speak out. Anyway. Those are my stories.